A reading from Exodus. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, formed it in a mold, and cast an image of a calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a festival of the Lord. They rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. The Lord said to Moses, Go down at once. Your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshiped and sacrificed to it and, and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. And of you, I will make a great nation. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath, change your mind, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he had planned to bring upon his people. The word of the Lord. This is a reading from Philippians. My brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. I urge Iodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you also, my loyal companion, to help these women, for they have struggled beside me in the work of the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, 
whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the peace of God will be with you. The word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Once more Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding banquet, but they would not come. Again he sent other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Look, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they made light of it and went away, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. And then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing a wedding robe, and he said to him, Friend, how'd you get in here without a wedding robe? And the man was speechless. And then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, as with last week, this is another one of those stories I just don't like, and I should tell you that up front. Um, Mainly, you should know that as with last week, this story has been used to once again, justify Christian anti-Semitism for about 1,500 years. And this was largely due to some um, philosophical Christian um, doctors of the church, including Ambrose of Milan and Augustine of Hippo, who decided that the best way to read parables was allegorical. In the allegorical read, and you're probably familiar with this one, the king, of course, is God, and the son is Jesus, and all of the Jewish people are invited to the kingdom, but they won't come. So the king destroys them, and then invites new people, those being Gentiles, to come in, good and bad. And then comes uh, the real turn of the screw, is that you'd better be wearing the right clothes, which is one way to say, with Ambrose and Augustine, you better believe the right things. You'd better have the right Catholic doctrine Otherwise, you'll be bound up and thrown into the darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is the the oldest dominant interpretation of the story. If you're happy with that one, you can ignore the rest of what I'm getting ready to say. Um, If that's life-giving for you, um, explain it to me. Um, There's another... (laughs) reading that I received as a young boy that's, that's not really allegorical. I mean, it's somewhat based upon this. It's, it's really more of an illusion in which we've picked uh, the right people. So as with the allegory, of course, the king is God and the son is Jesus. And the people who don't come are whatever denomination you're not. So um, 
those Methodists, you know, those darn Lutherans. Uh, this is sort of the way to read it. And, and the clothes you wear to the wedding have to do with either your beliefs or the clothes you wear to church. So you better not wear flip-flops or you might get tied up and thrown out, right? Um, even though, did you notice in the Exodus that the boys are wearing earrings too? Okay, anyway, um, we knew not to do that because God might tie us up and throw us into this dark place. Again, if that one works for you and it's life-giving, I need you to explain it. Because honestly, for me, uh, as a young boy and growing up with that most of my life, I felt that the effect of the parable essentially was to tie me up and cause most of my faith development to be lived in a place with weeping and gnashing of teeth because my whole life I was afraid God would send me to hell if I just sneezed at the wrong moment in church or if I believed the wrong thing, or if I dared to ask the question that was on my mind that somebody else in the church might think was irreverent, I'd be wearing the wrong clothes at the wedding and God would punish me. Sort of scary, isn't it? I want to give you a different way to think about it, though. And again, if you've already liked the other two ways I've given you, the windows are pretty, and go ahead and lose yourself in the beauty. But to get to the third reading, I want to go securitously back to the Exodus reading. Many of us refer to this as um, the story of the golden calf. And traditionally, once again, it sure makes sense that God is mad because after all, the people have just been delivered from Egypt after 10 plagues. You know, including this, this dramatic plague uh, on the firstborn. And then they've been led through the Sea of Reeds and they came through unscathed and Pharaoh's people were all drowned. So you'd think that they'd have really good reason to be faithful people, right? Again, this is the way I, I, I sort of grew up with this. So... Um, when they go around making idols, which shows their lack of faith, God is justified in being angry enough to wipe them out. Except when you stop and think about it, the people actually haven't heard the commandment against idolatry yet, because Moses has that up on the mountain. Right? He's been receiving it, but he hasn't given it to them yet. And by the way, did you notice that the people aren't worshiping other gods like Baal and, and Asherah and uh, Ra and Osiris? They're going to have a festival to the Lord. It's just that they've made an image. They've made a bull, a calf. It turns out that when they make the temple in Jerusalem, there's 12 calves. So sometimes calves are okay, and other times they're really bad. If you're confused, I think this is good. Because the most confusing thing really happens next. God says, Moses, the people are bad. You better get down there. <laughs> and, and, and then God has a second thought. No, don't go down there. I'll just destroy all of them, and I'll start over with you. Now, that has to be very tempting to know that God has decided you're worth starting over again with. But it is a slippery slope, isn't it? Because here the people have done one bad thing and they're about to get wiped out. If God starts over with you and you do one bad thing, you might be next. <laughs> By the way, Moses does a bad thing. If you know the story, he hits a rock instead of talking it. And that's really bad? It is. Uh, if God will destroy the people for this, maybe God... We'll destroy Moses for that. And then here comes the biggest surprise of all. Moses says, God, I don't think you should do that. 
You ever prayed like that? <laughs> God, I get that you're upset, but this would be a bad idea. And look at Moses' reasoning. It would make you look bad. <laughs> Let's not consider the ethics of it, God, but you'd look real bad because, after all, you did just free these people, and all the other people are impressed with you. But if you kill them, people would be, well, unimpressed that you freed them to kill them. So in order to maintain your reputation, reconsider, please. <laughs> Anybody prayed like that? <laughs> uh, and here's the wildest part of all. And, and you know, I, I, it's nice to say I'm not making this up because we just read it. God changed God's mind. Huh. Now, the way I grew up, God didn't do that. I don't know about you all. The way I grew up, God already knew everything the way it was before it happened, right? The way I grew up, God is testing Moses here, but the story doesn't say that. And by the way, even if that were the case, what would happen if Moses failed the test? Would all the people have been wiped out? Is it all really riding on Moses? Changing minds. You know, you should know that in Hebrew, this is not the word change mind. This is the word repent. And I want to know whether you think changing your mind is the same as repentance. In my mind, it isn't. I changed my mind at the salad bar. I, I'm looking at pickled beets, and initially I thought beets would be a good idea, but I don't think they'll go well with the dressing I've selected, so I changed my mind. I don't usually think of repentance working that way. Normally, I think repentance has to do with something I've planned to do wrong or done wrong, and I'm contrite, and I'm sorry, and I change my ways about, right? They seem like very different words, because they are. And <laughs> you should know that in the story, God repents from what God has said God is going to do, which implies, you see, that it was wrong. Actually, if you read the story, I think I'd rather have Moses represent me than God. Wouldn't you? Honestly, in this story. And I actually wonder if that isn't part of what the story is there to do. See, sometimes I think we fall into the trap that we read Scripture at face value and we think it is informing us to be just like this. And instead, I have found the more I've read Scripture and actually thought about it, that the Scripture might just be there inviting me to think about it. Not blindly, but to think about it. If I asked you, who is God more like in the story, God or Moses, I think most of you would raise your hand on Moses. If I asked you, who am I more like, God or Moses, my hand goes up on God. You see, because when I invite you to a party and you don't come, I get really mad. <laughs> this happened to us in middle school. But I do want to tell you in the story, it's almost like God one-ups my middle school madness because I might be mad, but I'm not going to blow your house up. You notice what happens in the story. It almost makes me wonder if when Jesus tells this parable, he's waiting for one of his disciples to be Moses. 
He's waiting for one of them to say, No, no, Lord. The kingdom of God doesn't work like that. That's the way the kingdom of human beings work, where when you spurn our honor, we get revenge. No, Jesus, God's kingdom isn't like that. Not a single disciple speaks up. But Moses did. You see, Moses did. I think through that parable with me again. All the people who were worthy of the invitation don't come, so by, it, by his own admission, the king is inviting people who aren't worthy. That seems kind of nice until you go and review how the king treats those people. Look, we've invited lots of homeless people and drug addicts to the party. But if they're not dressed the way I want, I should throw them out. Now think through that logically. You're homeless and you don't have anything. And when you come in wearing your homeless clothes and they're not proper party attire, you don't just get put out, you get punished. Do we really think God works like that? For most of my life, the answer was yes. But consider the psalm that we sung. Yea, that I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The psalm does not say that the rod and staff abuse me. The psalm does not say that God's rod and staff are there to whip us and beat us and punish us when we make the wrong decision. The rod and the staff are there to comfort us and to keep us safe. This is what's great about combining four readings, is that we're allowed to have a conversation among the four of them. And you know, there's something else that stands out to me here as we think about these readings, and and it really comes back to what the readings are there to do, because you know, as a young boy, I sure did learn that the Bible's the Word of God. But the Bible itself insists that Jesus is the Word of God not the Bible. I should say that again. The Word of God is not the Bible. It's Jesus. And I ask you, when we think about this story, which one the resurrected Jesus would do? Advocate for the people or condemn them to death? I wonder if these stories aren't asking us to reconsider God's character Moses is not saying, save the people because they deserve it. Moses says, save the people because you're better than that. Turn away from revenge, God, because you're not like your people. You're better than they are. And if you were to exact revenge like they do, God, you'd be just like them. Thanks be to God, God is not like us don't you think and that's where we have this lovely reading from philippians seems like there's two ladies who are ministering uh, with paul and they're having trouble agreeing and paul says i urge Euodia and syntyche to be of a like mind again i suppose that can mean I urge them to agree factually on every point of their doctrine. 
I urge them to think exactly the same. Of course, you know how slippery a slope that is. Even if they miraculously could do that today, what happens when one of them has a new thought tomorrow that the other one didn't have? Now, I can tell you, um, the story can't possibly mean that. Because I've been married more than a day. (laughs) And, 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 And let me say, the key to my marriage working is not that we have the same opinion on all matters because it would have ended the first day. I don't know if we've even got through the wedding, right? Um, yeah. Um, this cannot be what Paul is talking about, believing everything the same, having all the same fact patterns. Surely what Paul means about being like-minded is the same thing that's kept our marriage is together for more than a day, for more than 13 years, for more than 50 years. The like mind is that we've chosen to stay together, especially when we disagree. The like mind is that we've chosen that we have more in common than we have apart, especially when we disagree. Has that worked in your marriage? <laughs> It makes me think that the readings today are really inviting us into a new way of considering who the kingdom of God is for. And what do we do when the invitation is spurned? And I'm also positive the readings remind us of small things, like how we're supposed to pray. Do we pray to God to change the weather? God, it's hot and humid in Texas. I wish it were cool. Could you do that? That's kind of a salad bar prayer, isn't it? Change your mind. Less humidity. Moses doesn't ask for that. Moses asked for God not to commit genocide. Do we pray for that? Do we advocate for people we know or who we don't know? Do we expect that God will listen? Or do we say something like, God, I really hope the world will be more peaceful, but not my will, your will be done. Do we actually know what God's will is? I think I do. (laughs) Not at the salad bar. But I sure think I do know what God's will when it regards peace and justice. Don't you? Do we pray for that? Or do we settle for salad bar decisions? And while we're praying for that, do we let other people convince us that we should be advocating for the people in our lives that we know aren't worthy of it. Remember, in the story, Moses does not say the people are undeserving. Moses says, God, you are better than that. It makes me think that in the moments of justified vengeance, 
our interior Moses should be praying to us on our behalf that we can be better than that. That we can include people who are not worthy. And that if we do that, we would join the Lord in being the good shepherd. That our rods and our staffs, that our accountability and our standards would not be there to punish or wreak havoc or vengeance. They would be there to comfort and protect. Maybe this story is inviting us to consider how we're stewards of our rods and our staffs. And maybe we're asked to consider, of course, always, whether or not the party is meant to be brought to where people need it the most instead of sort of blithely saying, Why don't you come over here when you're ready? Make sure you're dressed right. Make sure you worship and think the right way, which is mine, of course. (laughs) Then you can come in and observe. Don't touch anything for a while. You know, you got to figure it out first. What if instead, what if instead, we could genuinely trust and enjoy that God wants us to enjoy our lives and one another? What if we could trust that God made us not to work and to serve, but to enjoy God's work and service through us and with us and for us? And what if we could take that enjoyment and that larger life as a party to the streets? We don't have a lot of block parties in my neighborhood, but when we do, once a year, they're a lot of fun. What if the story is asking us to go have a new kind of block party and invite the people we would never consider inviting otherwise because they sure need God's party? And what if it's saying we're supposed to do that not just for them but because we need to invite people we otherwise would never think worthy of an invitation? What if God is like that? Life would be different and bigger.